Hey, everybody. Welcome to another installment of That Chat Podcast. In this episode today, we are going to talk a little bit about UBI, or as many of you may know, Universal Basic Income, or those of you from the States, the Freedom Dividend, talked about by Andrew Yang. And uh, today to guide us through here, we're, uh, we're going to go over some questions and some uh, a little bit of experiments and uh, other data that's been um, kind of preliminarily discussed here around UBI. So with that, uh, let's go ahead and get started. So Austin, as our, as our resident uh, UBI guy right now, our, our UBI proponent, um, oh boy. what do you, uh, what do you think of, uh, universal basic income in, uh, some of the countries that, uh, we've kind of looked at and just the idea as a whole, like, uh, do you want to explain to our audience what UBI is? Uh, sure. Uh, universal basic income is roughly stated that, uh, each individual gets a basic income allowed to them. Uh, the way we've been looking at it is per on a monthly basis. So it went, uh, and I believe there's age ranges set up for this too, but I think it's anybody that is over 18, at least in the first world countries is what they're aiming for is to get this basic income and to, uh, not only just receive it from the government, but to receive it as a tax free, uh, thing for them. So you're not paying income tax on it's what you're saying? Uh, yes. Now, I, I don't, um, to, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jordan, but it is tax exempt, right? Or yeah. So, free. so the, the idea of, of UBI in most understandings of it, that's not to say that different countries and cultures can't have different interpretations of how to implement, but the general understanding is that it is an unconditional payment. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> it's essential, which is a big reason why here in the States, when, uh, Andrew Yang was running for president, uh, in 2020, the the concept was that it was the freedom dividend, right? So it's essentially money you're already paying into the system that's supposed to be divvied up and sent back to you at, at a percentage, uh, which, of course, the number he had here in the U.S. was $1,000 per month for everybody of every income level. Uh, as long as you were a citizen, you were entitled to it. Interesting. I think the thought process there is like the, the poverty line. Is it like 12700 50 or something like that so that would bump everybody at least above that poverty line right right and the concept was that it's supposed it's supposed to be you know especially the term dividend it's supposed to be uh, a recurring payment back to you as a citizen for all the money that you put into the economic system into the political system the government local uh, you know sales tax everything else the idea was that you know, you as a citizen should be entitled to reap some of the massive economic rewards that our country sees in the, you know, 22 plus trillion dollar GDP that we have every year. So you're saying I might actually get some of the money back that I give to them? Uh, if, if Yang had been elected your president, it's quite possible you would have potentially been uh, seeing at least some legislation proposed. <laughs> um, but... Uh, under the current system with, with like a Biden administration? No, almost almost certainly not. No. I think it's kind of funny to point out too. something I picked up when we were doing some reading is everyone jumps real quick to the socialism kind of talk on it. This is something that a U.S. state technically already does. So Jordan or Austin, you kind of want to field that one. 
Uh, sure, I can start out with it. Uh, the state, in, the state that Jake brought up is Alaska, and they give their uh, individuals. I think it's somewhere around. Uh, I think it's like a thousand to two thousand a month allotted to them. Uh, those numbers could be wrong. Correct me though, please. And most, uh, a lot of that money isn't actually coming from that taxpayers themselves. It's coming from the actual oil that the state is producing and selling off. So. The reason, I, I see how this works in that uh, in a state such as Alaska being out and in the wilderness and pretty much away from the main body of the United States and all its resources, this is a big uh, like financial relief for the individuals that live there, especially for a lot of them that are uh, they're out there, but they're not as I guess prepared for the modern society that we live in or just prefer a more rural type of living situation. So, I mean, most of them I see or uh, a lot of the individuals that talk about this, they usually say that almost all of that goes towards food just because of how long their winters are out there. So I can see how with them and their use case of it, it is primarily for food and medical and possibly supplies for projects that they might have during the summertime periods. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other important aspect to add to that too, is that this is, it's also not new. So a lot of the UBI mm -hmm. that we see today, a lot of the experiments um, with some of the areas we're going to be looking at later, uh, like Kenya, um, the Netherlands, other places like that. Um, they're they're relatively recent projects uh, that have started within the last couple of years. Some of them are so new that we really don't even have a whole lot of trending data yet. Um, but the little that we do have does trend in a certain way. Um, but in Alaska, the case is that this has actually been going on for a very, very long time. Uh, and it's, it's been highly successful. I think it's also important to note too, Alaska, you know, the argument is made about population. Alaska does have a very small population in comparison to other states. Um, but I, I think there's there's a case to be made that that's not necessarily relevant either. But uh, figured that was an important thing to add that this this is not new in Alaska and it works quite well. Yeah, I think the concept itself isn't necessarily all that new either. Like there, historically in the U.S. That's itself, I think it was in the '80s there was some proposed legislation that got kind of shut down um, based on they really couldn't agree on what the amount should be is that right correct yeah i mean yeah uh, yeah the that's a good point you bring up too um universal basic income as a concept is not new uh and in modern society and in the west especially for people who don't really look into these types of things it sounds new it sounds different it sounds like uh something that we wouldn't have otherwise expected but um basic income variations have existed throughout time um i mean uh one of the most popular examples that uh people know of in my experience and talking to them is that of uh samurai in feudal japan they were actually not paid in cash uh, originally so as part of the the caste system that existed um and the the positions that people had within society they were actually paid in the food that they would eat. So your your payment, your uh, basic income was essentially the uh, rice allotment that you were given as a samurai within society. And 
that's actually been a common form of uh, payment and how people get compensated in terms of like a, a basic allotment or a basic income that's provided by uh, the government or your estate or whatever uh, group you're associated with um, that acts in place of the concept of cash that we have today for universal basic income. So there's been a lot of different varieties of universal basic income, a lot of different uh, forms and flavors to it. And uh, it's something that um, if you get a little creative with how you think, you realize like, oh, this is something we've actually done for a very long time throughout history in different places. I think that's one of the key points too is like people look at it as, oh, it's going to be, it's going to make people lazy or it's going to make people unmotivated. But for the most part, based on the studies, which we'll get into in a little bit, it actually shows that people are taking that offsetting either business costs or kind of re reinvesting in the system to keep producing and creating. And in turn, it's stuff that's not going by the wayside. It's not wasted money. It's being repurposed, redeveloped to grow. Um, so I think that's another big aspect people should look at um, when they're trying to make uh, their thoughts on it. Yeah. And to, and to add to that, I think um, most importantly for the individuals receiving, uh, I mean, I think what you, what you hit is important to the economy uh, itself and the integrity of a country's ability to keep its economic system running right by people having that kind of money and reinvesting it into the system. But I think also the freedom it gives people to reinvest in themselves as well. So the the psychological impact that they get from knowing that there's going to be, it's going to be all right, right? So if they have a bad month in their job or maybe it's a bad growing season, you're a farmer or you work in um, different industries where your income may be dependent on how much you can produce uh, or generate within a certain amount of time or with, you know, month by month, um, having something like this takes a lot of the stress of, am I going to be able to afford my rent? Am I going to be able to afford basic necessities this month? Because I don't necessarily know if circumstances outside of my control are going to impact my ability to, uh, to meet those basic needs, especially if you have a family or anything like that thrown into the mix. So I think the, um, the psychological benefits that people get from that, and then in turn, their ability to be more productive, to be more effective in their work, uh, coupled with the economic benefits uh, results in, and I think the research is showing this as well, uh, results well, it, in an improved, uh, <clears throat> more productive citizen as well. But isn't it the people that are making this argument that it's a bad thing or the ones that are, like the individuals that are, at that point to where they just hoard money and so they believe that everybody else is going to hoard money too if like they somehow get it like they're not going to spend it like uh the what like the uh, not the lawmakers but like the lobbyists that are financed by the like the big corporation stuff like that they're always greedy and wanting the money so they think that uh if like i get my money i'm just going to hoard it and not spend it kind of thing another thing is they're concerned because they're potentially going to get taxed more as part of the repayment on that more the onus is going to go on the business structure to kind of make up that allotment from what i understand at least so <clears throat> yeah i mean to go to go along with this the first part you brought up austin yeah that's kind of a mentality that you you kind of do see from a lot of these individuals who are 
in a different subset, at least of our population in this country, right? So you're talking about like big business leaders, uh, a number of CEOs, a lot of like the self-made millionaire types. They, right. There's the, there's the a, there's kind of a like altered their uh, aspect on how they view life. Well, I think I think person. a lot I think a lot of them have a fundamentally different view of the world in the first place, which allows them to have kind of that ability to I think there's a combination of factors that go into place in that kind of mentality you have to have a certain kind of passion behind you a certain kind of energy behind you that has to be directly related more towards either aspects of business or aspects of, of handling money or wealth or <clears throat> whatever it is that Some forms your lines, right? well I think just just different factors that form their general outlook that fit into the mold of how our society works today right I mean, like you have people who are going to be naturally gifted at basketball. You're going to have people who have, you know, the genetic build like a Michael Phelps for swimming. You're going to have people who fall into the type of system, that economic system that we have, and they just thrive in it, right? They're just inherently designed for it in just the way that they view the world, the way they were brought up, whatever it is. Um, but there's there's various different factors, and when they come together in the right way, you get an entrepreneur like um, – John Mackey, who actually within the last week uh, was on the Joe Rogan experience for anybody who may listen to that as well. Uh, I am somebody who follows that show. If he has very interesting conversations with people on it, but Mackey also as a CEO of Whole Foods had a very interesting perspective on the concept of socialism and the concept of uh, academics specifically who talk about wealth disparity and how it works in this country. And his general philosophy was really more that like, well, it's jealousy that fuels a lot of the the opinions that they have. And I thought that was, he, he boiled it down a lot to that concept. And it's not to say he didn't know a fair amount about the history of, of how uh, the economic systems in our country have worked. Um, he could have dived a bit more deep into it. I think there's more he could have looked into if he had a broader understanding of it. But I think the viewpoint he got from it was skewed by the kind of personality that he has, by the kind of position that he's in today. I find it really disingenuous to say, oh, well, you know, it's it's the reason people want these kinds of systems, they want this kind of support is because they themselves are jealous of what the wealthy have. And they, they, you know, they, they want what we have. And as somebody who's not at that kind of wealth level and has never lived at that kind of wealth level, that's, that's, I don't want the bends or like people, wealthy people to me who buy expensive stuff that doesn't like serve an express purpose for them. Doesn't make any sense to me, right? If I'm going to buy something that's high end, I expect it to be of some kind of extra advantage to me in performance or something else like that. But when we're all driving on the same highways, <clears throat> does it matter to me if I drive a Lexus or a Mercedes Benz? No. I mean, I'm, it's still going to be 70 miles per hour. Like what? There's no reason for me to have all the extra power under the hood. If I'm not ever going to use it, it it's just like the status symbol of, of it doesn't really make any sense to me. You should, be getting the best for something because you want the best for something for a specific reason to you rather than just moving into it and, and doing it because you have wealth. And I feel like that's kind of a viewpoint that they either have or they formulate based on 
the circumstances of, again, either their upbringing, their general outlook in life, or whatever the combination is of things that lead them to where they are. So, yeah, I mean, to, to the point you were making, <clears throat> I believe that there is a, uh, a distinct separation or divide, <clears throat> especially to people who were born in that kind of circumstance, right? It's, it's different for people who are self-made millionaires. They kind of bring themselves up. Maybe they had an experience in their, in their past where they saw what it was like to be poor. They had other things like that. So they changed their mindset or whatever circumstances altered them. But people who were born into that type of thing, I think you see it a lot more prevalently. They just don't understand what drives the average person. So they look at the they look at the wealth disparities between us and they say, well, it's a result of you being you or why don't you just do this? Or like, you know, I, I'm successful in this, that and the other. And they don't realize like, well, yeah, I mean, you grew up in this kind of environment or maybe you had the extra time in the summers where you didn't have to work because your parents could provide for you all year. So you were able to study this, that and the other. There's there's all kinds of different circumstances that poor people don't have. So <clears throat> when we look at a universal basic income, we see safety and security, a safety net. Like, oh, wow, yeah. If something goes bad for six months, <clears throat> you know, I don't have to, like, worry about, oh, well, I'll lose my job. And that 75% of my income will come from uh, unemployment. Instead, it's like, here's universal basic income, which is, again, depending on how you phrase it, a dividend or a return on what I'm already paying in taxes into the system. And it gives me enough security to know I can afford my groceries. I can afford my rent. I can afford to make payments on whatever it is I need to make payments on at the basic level. I think a lot of people see this $12,000 a year, again, in the U.S. example, as a way for people to do nothing. And it's like, it's enough money to make a difference in your life, but it's not enough where if it was your only source of income, you could really do anything with it. And I, I think that's an important distinctive marker. So something that blows uh, my mind is the, the 50, it's nearly 58% of people, I think that can't afford to pay an unexpected $500 bill in our country. That's something that's just absolutely astounding to me. Well, and it, it's it's much higher than that when you consider the amount of people who live paycheck to paycheck and don't have, um, they don't have any additional kind of savings. Like, I mean, we're talking almost eighty percent of the country doesn't have enough money where something like the pandemic hits, they don't have six months of of expenses saved up to be able to afford that offset cost. And as somebody who <clears throat> I, I try very hard to make sure my own house is right before I consider anything like buying something nice or whatever else. And I'm somebody who likes to buy um, the best of what I can get for my money. If I'm going to invest in something, I want to invest in, in the best that I can get. And for me, it's never a question, though. It's like if my rent comes up or I can buy, you know, some high-end fancy light system, I'm going to make sure my rent's paid. <laughs> like there's... It's not a question. If I have to wait the extra two or three months, peep, that's, that's again, that's a disparity of how people view money in this country. Most people have, you know, it's commonly known as a, as a net zero mindset where you look at your bank account and you're like, oh, wow, you know, I got my $500 in my bank account. I now have $500. And it's like, no, you don't. Because if you spend $500 that you have in your bank when you only have $500, now you have no money. So... 
the the concept that people have when they get flush with cash is to spend it and <clears throat> again you know that's that's a mentality that a lot of americans have and unfortunately our economic system is built off of that kind of mentality where we kind of depend on people to get their cash and then spend it and put it back into the system to keep things churning and that's why we're seeing in the pandemic there's been a whole lot of redirection of that spending right to so like online retailers and like jeff bezos's wealth has jumped incredibly in the last six months seven months and then we also see the disparity shifting the other way where small businesses are negatively impacted and people are losing their jobs and we've had what i think it's like over a hundred thousand small and medium-sized businesses that have permanently closed they will not be coming back um and that's just so far who knows what's going to happen when moratoriums on rents get lifted um on uh, mortgages all this other stuff that's supposed to hit at the end of uh, december of this year so you know um there's there's a whole lot of fear in that area um and a whole lot of people who like you said jake they don't have savings and they don't have a dollar to their names because there's a difference of how we view the world there's a difference of how our economy is run and um you know a UBI proposal is something that could offset or alleviate a lot of that for people. I think that's what the pandemic's done, especially it's kind of highlighted the, the downfall of um, kind of the, the capitalism structure and how it works. And that's the reason I think you're seeing a lot more conversation about the UBI. Obviously we had the, the um, CARES Act and everything that went through, we got the stimulus checks. So it kind of reopened that door on conversation and getting people to understand it. And I think you brought up another good point there is like, we're talking about the pandemic caused this move to online shopping and everything else. The other thing that is a big kind of proponent for the argument of transitioning this way is the automation of everything. As we continue to move and go, like there's going to be lost job markets, your transition, we're talking about anything, I think it's, what was it, like 7 million or 8 million truck drivers in the country? Like, we get auto-driving trucks, which is a conversation. All those people are out of work. How do you repurpose, retrain, and get them to produce back into the economy if they don't have any other skill set, they don't have any other education or training? So automation poses another proponent as we move forward, um, just in tech development and everything else that can really almost kind of validate some of the argument again. Yeah, and I think, you know, the mention of the truck drivers, too, brings in an important aspect. It's, I don't know if either of you know, but the number one job before the pandemic, do you have any idea what it was? Truck driver. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Not truck driver. What, what was it you said, Austin? I said going to school. No. Number one occupation was cashier. Wow. How many cashiers are we utilizing these days? Retail, retail service, number two. How many people are we using in that? <clears throat> or I, I'm not sure if it's number two now. It might, it's still in the top ten. I'd have to check. But, I mean, <laughs> talking about two jobs that have been massively displaced. When you look at our unemployment rate, right, it's at, uh, I think it was 6.9% last time I checked. That's really close to where we were at the height of the 2008 recession, which was 7.2%. And for a couple months, we were much, much higher than that. 
So the you know the the role of the truck drivers being displaced and these other workers being displaced and the economic shifts of automation are really good points that you brought up Jake because the common argument to that is well look at the industrial revolution right look at the gilded age look at <clears throat> you know the the rise of uh, petrol products and and the use of fuels steam power all this other stuff that was able to create machinery that could replace regular workers right like you didn't need a hand loom worker when you could machine loom much more effectively and faster and really you were only hiring people to maintain the machines at that point keep the machines running keep them in check whatever else i mean there are a whole host of other issues child labor laws and all that other stuff that was just a, a mess during that time and the big argument that's made is well we have shifts right like the economy is always shifting we're always in a quote-unquote new economy system so the idea is like the internet changed the economy in, in the late 1990s. <clears throat> Social media further changed that in the 2010s. Before that, you had, you know, all these, all these different time periods in which you could justify the rise of the computer was a new economy and people adapted and adjusted. And all the time, quotes that are made throughout that is, but it's happening at a rate that's too fast, right? So the argument made today is automation is it's really changing the game and it's changing it so quickly people are going out of work so the counter argument people have is well yeah but that's been throughout time and people adapt and people learn my counter argument to that counter argument is but should Ooh. people have to suffer through that process right are we if we're in a position where we can alleviate the suffering of people during those transitions it's not to discount the argument they, that they make and say well, no, the economy is shifting faster than ever before. Okay, I'll give you the, I'll give you that argument that yeah, things are shifting fast. Every time they shift like this, it's quick, and it it results in a lot of job loss and a lot of pain and suffering for people. Do we have an obligation as a country, morally and ethically, as well as just for the sake of the economy, to continue spending to make a smoother transition, to provide people with that safety net, so that asset economy shifts. And as they, they go through that pain, it doesn't have to be so severe on the segments of the economy that aren't getting shown love from the government, right? I mean, the government bailed out the airline industry when all this went down. Did they bail out all the retail shops? No, they didn't at all. So the government chose who they were going to give money to. They decided this sector is going to get cash. These people are going to get cash. They flooded the stock market with cash. I mean, the amount of money that actually went to the people themselves and the stimulus checks was such a minute amount of that bill. It, it didn't even really matter. And from the sources that we've discussed and something we can talk about more um, as we go on, when you give people cash and you give them money, as we saw with the essentially one UBI payment of $1,200, what did they spend it on? The vast majority of them spent it on basic needs. And you know what? If if the if that worst, other people put it in the bank or use it to pay off some debt that they have, good. That's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. We should be allowing people to get themselves into a position where they can be more successful in our economy. And if that means paying off their debt, paying their basic needs, whatever else it is, that's good for all of us because then it results in them having a surplus of cash and they're more likely to pump that into new businesses, new industries, and all the other great stuff that's gonna come out of automation. 
So, you know, I, especially with the truck driver reference there, yeah, that, that's, that's a great piece, Jake. But enough of our uh, meandering around the different concepts and, and things like that going on here. Austin, what is going on with the largest scale test in uh, Kenya so far? And in the, uh, I uh, thought you'd never Africa ask. Region. So uh, a company by the name of Give Directly has started out a 12-year long experiment to see how uh, the universal basic income is actually going to affect uh, individuals. And, and it's headed by... Real quick, sure. what year are they currently in on that 12-year run? We are in year four at the moment. Started out 2016, if my math is correct, hopefully. But it's uh, headed by, or it's actually partnered with um, MIT and then Princeton University and then certain uh, college professors and head of departments are actually um, both leading and in uh, advising this entire experiment. So I, to me, that was actually really interesting to see that it wasn't just a like a, just a certain individual. Oh, and I almost forgot, but also it's backed by um, very wealthy, I guess, uh, electronic companies. So, uh, Microsoft's one of them. Some uh, other financial companies and are putting their stake in this just to see how it turns out. And uh, one way the experiment is working and how they're laying it out is that there's uh, three different groups that they're looking at for this. Uh, there's the long-term group, which is individuals will be part of the whole 12 year period and they will receive about 75 cents per day for each adult and the 44 villages that they are testing it on. So that roughly, I think it was about $27 total for each individual. There's a short term uh, basic income plan. This goes for 80 villages. It's two, it's only two years but they receive the same amount uh, per month as the uh, long-term group does. There's a third group that's a lump sum uh, group, so that's 71 villages. And instead of receipt, and they uh, they basically would receive their money in one lump sum, as the name states. But I believe it was only for about the two-year. It would be the same amount as the two-year group, but it would just all be at the one time. And then... The last group, which uh, I feel really bad for this group, but it, for the experiment, it is needed. There are 100 villages that are not receiving any cash transfers whatsoever, just as the control group to see how this actually plays out. So, I mean, their sample size is pretty good. The, f the first group is 44 villages. The second group is 80. Third group is 71. And then 100 villages of no money whatsoever. So I, their numbers are going to be very, very... um accurate at least in my opinion to it and uh where you guys got any questions for it or for me anyway have they collected well, i, I know they're in it. like year four but have they collected anything kind of are they seeing any trends through that first kind of third of the the experiment uh so as of right now they are um they're noticing that a lot of people are uh they're, instead of relying on individuals or government entities or um, like third world uh, aid programs, they're actually using the money themselves to buy what they need at that time. And they're actually very happy about it. Uh, there's uh, 
sense of interviews with uh, one village in particular, and I'll touch on it later about the certain individuals. But uh, their uh, their chief uh, made the argument that yeah, um, it's nice to have like say shoes come in, but I don't need a new pair of shoes every month for my needs. I I need food, or I need aid, or I need medicine or i just need construction supplies to actually build like a project that i want to do or to help make my life better so that's one argument that they're saying is actually um pretty substantial is because they're actually able to be financially independent of these groups and when it comes to actually meeting their needs instead of having to wait or end up just not being able to get take get their situation taken care of and they're also reinvesting the money back into other things, not just part of their village. It's not like they're just keeping all the money in their village themselves. There's one individual, she, um, like most people there, they have at least like two to three jobs. And one of her jobs is buying fish from a lake and then basically cooking the fish up and then tra- um, and then selling it off into different parts or different towns or along those lines and thereby transferring the wealth. And she was able to do it partly when she before this whole experiment started but because of the experiment ha- has started she's been able to buy more fish at a time which is then transfers more money to the fishermen which then allows them to meet their needs and then by she's able around every time to double her money that she invests into the actual um the actual money that she receives uh, every month so i mean it, it's a good profit system so i to me, it's actually really, really cool to watch them, uh, not to, not just uh, just in a single job too, but be able to reinvest it into multiple jobs that they have because to the, they have a side hustle like us, but they don't call it a side hustle because it's, a, it's America coin term. Yeah. But I mean, so, they have. I mean, they have a, that's how they work, man. Like, yeah. that's, that's what it is. Right. I uh, one instance, their village. Um, one of the village uh, elders. He's a. Uh, He's not only he also he owns um or no sorry not the village elder, uh there's a person that lives there he's a college professor, he owns a I think he's either a bar owner or a bartender and then he's also, uh what was the last one? Uh, just missed it, but he he basically he has the three jobs so I mean it's the fact that they're able to diversify themselves along these lines is actually quite um remarkable and eye-opening yeah, i think that's kind of the other motivating factor for it too is like you have the ability to invest and start these other opportunities and look at things you're not necessarily resigned to selling your eight hours a day for a wage at some job that you're not invested in like you can kind of build and create and do more passion or purposeful work um with that income that's coming in and reestablish and kind of be more motivated um to build those interests yeah the other um aspect i think is important to touch on too is exactly how much money was that they were getting paid uh, in comparison, because there is, um, again, for people who are going to make the arguments, um, I think it's important to to bring this up and to uh, to discuss that a little bit. Uh, 
Uh, did I mention it? I think yeah, you did. You listed it. It was like 27 cents a day. Yeah. So it came out to like 30 bucks a month, essentially. Yeah. But you got to think the the economic differences of how far right. $30 goes somewhere else in comparison to the U.S. here. Right. 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 But overall, right. it was like a $30 million project, I think you said. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the so the importance of, of those those numbers and that factor too is you know a big argument is like where are we going to get the money for this? How are we going to fund this? The important thing to understand is that the economic systems of larger countries are going to be larger than the economic systems of smaller countries, right? So when you look at the valuation um, of of money into what we put it towards that's where you kind of find the cash <laughs> that we would need, right? So there's two ways to get the kind of money that you would need for a UBI, and that's either to cut spending and reallocate the funds or to implement new taxes. And if you were to implement new taxes, you can implement them on a wider variety of things. Or if you were to implement a cut in spending, I can think of at least one major area where you could pull cash from right now to fix a lot of different things besides UPI, and that's specifically DOD budgets. So the uh, the use of cash in this country is interesting, um, especially because the dollar, the U.S. dollar, is a global trade currency. It's the global standard dollar. The important aspect of talking about the cost of UBI is the idea that if you if you pull from different funding sources that exist as well as implement light taxation on other things you can get massive results that don't necessarily impact the day-to-day of the average person they don't create this huge gap in in earning income for different people at different levels because well my taxes are so much higher at this bracket now or whatever else you can have a very modest uh, level of payment into this type of thing to get the kind of benefit that uh, like Yang was bringing up originally. I think uh, another thing that Yang different for different amounts of money too. Yeah, I think another thing that Yang brought up that was kind of an interesting point is he talked about eliminating kind of that that poverty uh, poverty line and lifting people up out of that and taking them out of certain circumstances and some of the economic differences that come as a part of being in that lower income and potential lower crime rates stuff like that like tenfold and that means less money spent on um kind of incarceration and taking care of inmates and stuff like that just because people aren't in necessarily in positions to commit those crimes or being that so there's other ways that the money is going to be made back just other than taxation or the reduction in spending it can be where we're saving on other services that we're that are governmentally funded as well yeah, and that was that's an important aspect I was about to get to as well with other programs we currently run, like welfare programs, SNAP, other types of benefits in which people don't necessarily have to be paying into those. I mean, like a lot of the concerns people have right now is that, well, my tax money goes to, you know, this, that, and the other, and people can abuse it, or they do whatever else with it, or they're getting benefits from it, and yada. Well, all right, you have a problem with that, then how about UBI? That applies to everybody. You get it, they get it. It's lump sum cash. They can use it for whatever they want. There's not supposed to be any kind of set circumstances. So if they decide to blow it all and throw it back into the economy, that's more money back for all of us. It's not It's not a big deal to you as an individual. We, we complain so much about the welfare system as it is. We complain about the infrastructure that we have to support families, single mothers, poor people, whatever it may be. And 
that reallocation and distribution into a UBI system creates an issue where, again, like you mentioned, reduction in crime, reduction in the money that's spent on incarceration, reduction in supporting the private prison system that's already overpopulated. I mean, the policing costs that go into all of that type of stuff. It's, it's you know, redundancies that get reduced. You know, you're talking about neighborhoods, property values going back up because there's less crime. It, it just enriches the whole system when you look at the positive aspects that can come out of this. And when you try and look at the negative aspects of UBI, it's, it's what? Maybe a minor tax? I mean, I guess if you look at an increased social safety net as a negative, um, you know, I mean, that, that's a personal problem, it sounds like to me, but um, I, I don't see a lot of negative aspects that you can argue for something like UBI. When you look at the trends, when you look at the data, regardless of the amounts that are being discussed between countries, because the, the returns that you're getting for what you're putting into it can be substantially greater and so I, I just thought that was an important part to bring up when we're talking about the amount of cash that they're getting over in the Kenya experiment, because people will try and correlate that to the U.S. The other thing you kind of touched on there that is important as well, the welfare programs that we're currently doing. I think what Yang was saying when he was kind of on his spiel with Joe Rogan and some other people as well was that that offset of those and eliminating those programs that we currently have would nearly be half of the cost to do UBI for everybody. So like this money, we're already spending, like you said, Jordan, we're spending money towards programs similar already. And that would just be redirected. So really the cost to start and get rolling for everybody across the board is already nearly 50% because we would just be changing from our current welfare system to the UBI. So a quick question with that then is if they, if they're on, if let's say an individual is on the uh, UBI and then like they blow all their money for something, whatever reason, is there going to be a program there to actually help assist them if something like that happens or is it on them and then kind of thing that I haven't read into a lot. Um, I think it would be interesting to see if there is a fallback safety net still, I would assume that that probably goes away. Um, if you're eliminating just your general welfare, it would be, Hey, this is your money. You need to take care of it. Anything outside of this is on, you now. Because so like essentially, yeah, because like right. essentially yeah. Okay. they're they're putting you to the floor. What you do from there is up to you. Well, I think I think at that point the we we kind of flip the issue of work on its head, right? So when you're talking about UBI, we're not talking about taking jobs away, right? We're talking about a supplemental income that ensures that your basic needs can be met, whether you fall on hard times or not you're getting a UBI income. If that means, you know, you're saving it up for that that five or six month expense. If you're saving it up for, you know, you have a critical issue that comes up, your car breaks down, something else like that, that you need for your job or whatever else that it is that you're doing in life. That's the whole point of UBI, right? It's supposed to be that safety net. Now, if you were to have people, and again, this is an argument that comes up too. Well, what do people get, you know, $12,000 a year and they just blow it, whatever else. And it's like, Okay, well, at worst, they've just stimulated the economy, right? At worst, they've just funded businesses. They've just kept other people employed. They've just allowed other people to um, <clears throat> profit off of the, I mean, th that's capitalism, right? Like if you're, right. if you're a supposed capitalist and UBI's worst outcome is that people blow all the cash and throw it back into the economy, well, then you should be 
clapping your hands and jumping up and down for joy because that's exactly what you want as a capitalist, right? But the other thing, too, is for somebody that blows all their UBI money, right? Let's say we just get people that just they spend it on shoes. They spend it on whatever. They don't spend it on their basic needs. Well, that's where a job comes in, right? So mm -hmm. <clears throat> they can still have gainful employment. There's there's no reason with UBI that you can't get a job, too. So that's that's the argument I would make. Okay. Because I was, uh, I was more leaning towards, like, say, yeah, they either blow it on something stupid or it gets stolen. Well, I think this goes back to the initial point where we were talking about, like, this isn't enough to solely just live off of. So right. you're going to have other income. So the the idea and thought process behind this is this money's supposed to be a surplus. Okay. So if you lose it, sorry about you. Okay. And again, realistically, again, too, the vast majority of us who live in the country are, you know, and who are of working age are working, be that full-time, be that part-time. We pay taxes. And so the concept of this is, look, you pay your taxes, you do your own taxes every year, too. So on top of your, your money getting taken out, and rather than the allocation being taken from you and done correctly, at the end of the year, you then have to go back and recalculate everything up and be like, okay, did I do this right? Did I do like you? You shouldn't be the one making sure that your tax rate is accurate. The government should be the one doing that. So the way the tax system works in the first place doesn't make any sense. But the the important part is, is that again, when you look at this in the way that Yang phrased it, which I think is really the accurate way to look at it, is it really is a dividend on the return of what you put into the country, right? It's a it's a reinvestment into you as being part of the country and being a citizen and saying, look, here's your here's your kickback, here's your return from what you've put into the government all year long, and it's going to be $12,000 per person, and it's going to be $1,000 across the board every single month. That's, that's your payback amount. You can use it how you like. It's tax-free. It's just given to you as a safety net. And for a lot of other people, when they know that their basic needs can be met with the safety net, then they can, you really get to the point where you can alternate what is and isn't your safety net. Is here, is your part time job now your safety net? Because you have UBI making sure that you're able to meet your basic needs. And if, if, you're, if you're somebody who's working a full time job and you just blow your UBI right back into the economy, either way, the stimulation is going to the benefit of the person not you know the the detriment uh of the you know they don't make enough to afford their their basic needs with the job that they have because they work in the gig economy that doesn't pay them enough they get viewed as contract workers whatever else it's like if if, if people aren't getting benefits they aren't getting all these other things you know like maybe now you have individuals that can use their ubi to pay for health insurance that they couldn't otherwise afford there's a whole different set of ways that UBI can be used. It doesn't have to be allocated towards, you know, your your groceries. And you shouldn't feel bad if you use your UBI as somebody who works part-time and doesn't have benefits to cover benefits expenses. That's the whole point of the UBI is it's a reinvestment back into you to pay for what you need or what you feel is going to be uh, most beneficial for you as a citizen. So, so I have a few questions with that. Uh, they just actually came to mind. Uh, with this system in place, would you see a possible problem with, like, say, immigration coming to the 
country now and i know we stated that you had to be a citizen to get this uh to get the ubi but it um since some citizens are able to become or obtain citizenship citizenships just by being born here do you see that being a problem or would there be an actual like age allowment to where you would actually be eligible for the ubi everything I mean, yeah okay, I, don't, I don't think you're gonna be i, I don't think you're gonna be ubi children um okay. per se, right i mean that you're talking about 18 18 years or older if you're a legal adult um i mean so that that removes a significant portion like you know people total the population up and they go oh my god you know it's gonna be a thousand dollars times this money it's like well no i mean you're eliminating a whole subset of the population that's 18 years or younger right i mean those are those are the the populations that are placed into the care of their parents or whatever else you know like it's how we do the tax system already okay. right you get you get deductions for your dependents and other things like that um out of your tax system as it is you get you know different benefits if you file married with children whatever else like obviously ubi is going to it's going to scale uh at a system like that based on age and dependency level and things like that but um you know no the, the idea would be once you're 18 you're getting ubi everybody else is getting ubi and then you're getting that until you die and that you know that that would supplement um other aspects now to say how that would impact things like social security or other stuff like that which is which is a real hot topic for the you know the older people in the population mm -hmm. um that that would remain to be seen but again the circumstances that you are trying to build this off of a reallocation of existing expenses like in the welfare system whatever else and some you know really minor uh taxation efforts or whatever else that would be again spread across different areas that either classically haven't seen a tax rate or whatever um <clears throat> supplemental income you could pull from other parts of uh, of our budget like the dod budgets and stuff like that so i don't see a massive uh impact or, or real necessary reason to worry uh, about things like social security the higher end either for older citizens being as a group that probably won't actually see social security uh, in our lifetime, at least, or be able to like benefit from it, uh, would it be? Would do you think it'd be an all right idea to actually keep both of them in play, or would it be easier to just phase like social security out with this I mean, you know, UBI in place? In place. That's a tough question on my end because there's a lot mm -hmm. of people, our parents' generation too, that are a lot older now. Um, that have been paying into the system their entire lives, right? And those benefits. I mean, really, really, how Social Security works is your your the, the concept people have is that well, I've been paying into this, so I'm entitled to this at the end of my life. It's like, really, you've been paying for your parents' Social Security is what it is, and your children pay for your Social Security. And um, with the Boomer generation just being so large, um, well, granted, and, uh... millennials are large too, but Gen X is very small in between. So there's there's a bit of a difficulty with millennials not having as many kids themselves because of the financial strains on them to be able to afford the social security system. Um, I mean, I think for people in our age bracket, especially because of the way we've been more financially conscious than some of the older generations, a UBI system in place of SS spread out over the course of our entire lives used responsibly would benefit the vast majority of us. However, we also have to remember how the average American views their cash, how they view their bank account. 
and what that means for them getting older in in um in social security right like we think of our parents for the most part as like responsible people that's not the vast majority of americans so you know before social security was implemented in the 1930s about half of the elderly died in poverty today it's about 10 percent or less so social security has made a substantial impact in the ability of the elderly to not die in poverty um but <clears throat> at the same time it's uh it's really important to take into consideration the differences in in, in cultural aspects of how millennials view money growing up with multiple recessions now um and uh and how that impacts their their worldview being able to afford houses all that stuff um but that doesn't necessarily make me think that we would get rid of social security or uh, necessarily reduce its impact just because of the extremely long history we have showing how incredibly beneficial it is to elderly populations here okay uh just uh, i'm just curious though but is the um what is the social security payout per month for them or is it so weekly it, it varies it varies okay. based on based on income and other things like that so it's it's not a static number for everybody um and some people some people benefit more or less depending on uh, the pension rates what age they retire at all those different types of things impact uh, uh, the aspects that they're entitled to. Okay. Because I, I think I remember in one of my jobs, it was something like this one lady was only making like 700 a month or something like that. Or maybe it was per paycheck. Like, again, I can't remember exactly, but I was just curious. Yeah, that's that's that sounds exactly within reason. Yeah, Social Security, yeah, I mean, for people who may not understand that might be listening, it's not like your uh, your paycheck that you had while you were working full-time as an adult gets replaced by Social Security. It's a substantially smaller amount of money. But again, Social Security is like a form of UBI that's been around for a long time for the elderly. Uh, but the concept has always been, at least it's been thought of, that, well, I work for this my entire life, so I'm entitled to this payout, whatever else. Again... The, the generation behind you, the generations behind you that are working are the ones paying for your social security in the moment. The government does not set up a savings account for you that you you dip into once you hit, you know, uh, the eligible age, whatever it's going to be at that particular time in your late 60s. Um, Wouldn't that be nice? It's, uh, yeah, right. It, well, then that's a, retirement. Another reason. <laughs> I think the, retirement would sound real nice. I, I don't know if I'm on track for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, you know that's that's why it's so important for people to understand the concept of saving and to not have a, a net zero mentality because when they look at their total pool of money as their total pool of spendable cash it creates a really bad mindset and they drain all that cash out and then they wonder why they're perpetually poor and broke and it's like well you know you have to make sure you're saving or reinvesting a, lo a lot of that cash into a 401 or an ira or something uh be that stocks, whatever it is, or uh, to babies. make sure that you're you're getting enough return to actually save. So, um, I again, I think the big message too for UBI, we should be encouraging things like this for the benefit of people's mentality, for the benefit of what they need, but at the same time, we also need to be encouraging people to spend and not depend on the government to take care of them because depending on which way the wind blows with who's in power or whatever else or whatever law gets overturned 
by an act of Congress or gets declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court or whatever it may be, make sure you're doing your best to take care of yourself and you, your family, your own. Um, <clears throat> push for things like EBI, you know, support them uh, if you think that they'll be beneficial, if the data shows that they are, which so far it seems to be the case. But definitely, definitely, definitely save as much of your own money as you possibly can. Reinvest it in yourself, your education, your home, whatever it is, because uh, you, sh you should really not depend on the government to be providing for you like that. So I guess a, a final question for me then is, uh, is there anything that we can learn from, say, like the first world countries that have this in state already besides uh, Alaska? Yeah, I mean, so it's been voted on in a couple of places in Europe uh, to, to move away from Africa here for a second. Mm -hmm. um finland did a two-year run uh so far that i think has the the best results and um they had this they had i mean they had a similar impact on their citizens that we we're seeing in, in the experiment in kenya right psychological safety that people felt the uh financial security that people felt from getting uh you know a universal income you know, i believe it was 560 pounds so be about around 700 750 dollar mark um <clears throat> and it just it reduced stress was it was a huge thing it reduced worry and those types of things don't seem like they have a substantial impact if you're a worker who's showing up every day and you're not worried about how the hell you're gonna afford rent you can be much more productive and focused on your tasks uh but they also they also noted benefits in just their their uh their ability to focus on other things outside of their basic needs that allowed them to be a lot more productive so i think uh, the benefits outside of just finances and again there was no restriction on their ability to work so if people are wondering like oh am i gonna have to go part-time or whatever else like that none of that was implemented it's just an unconditional amount of cash that's cut to you so uh, other countries that have like big activist movements like France, Germany, other things like that, you're starting to see more of a trend and a push towards those types of things, uh, at least considerations. Um, Eastern European countries like Poland, uh, not so much. They don't really have the kind of infrastructure and culture of, um, you know, activism that some of the Western European countries do. So it, it's going to remain, uh, you know, a test of time to see what goes over there. But uh, I think it's only a matter of time before you see countries like France and, and Germany start implementing these types of things. Yeah, and kind of touch on that. I'll drop links in the descriptions, the ones you shared, Austin, Jordan, as well. I think one that we kind of missed out on, didn't really touch on too much that I saw was the Iranian uh, kind of place or um, program that was in place and kind of the, the benefits and results that they saw um, kind of after their power subsidy went away, they implemented the system. Um, I think it turned out to be like 16K a year in income on top of just your base income um so what it factored out to in the u.s relatively so um we'll drop links to that in the description uh we're pretty much gonna have to wrap this one up we're coming up on that hour mark so any final thoughts or anything guys yeah i mean on my end just uh just to reiterate you know um i, th I think ubi personally is a it's an interesting concept it's not new by any means, uh, at least in, in the way it's being phrased. It might be interpreted as new, but um, you know, it's it's something to consider, uh, especially again as we automate really quickly and as we are constantly in the you know quote unquote new economy. Um, <clears throat> you know, making the process of of setting up a safety net for people to be secure with and 
psychologically benefit from, I think is really important. And um, I think it could result in some, some bigger changes uh, beyond the financials that we interpret. Uh, but at the same time, again, I think it's important to caution people to save their cash and to uh, make smart choices with the money that they have and uh, do what's best for themselves and their families. 